0: Hello and welcome to the Stinging Fly podcast. I'm Sally Rooney and I'm here with Sarah Gilmartin to talk about the new anthology, Stinging Fly Stories, which celebrates 20 years of the magazine. Sarah Gilmartin is an arts journalist who writes a weekly column on debut fiction for the Irish Times and also reviews for the Sunday Times, Sunday Business Post and Irish Examiner. She lectures in feature writing and she's also co-editor of the Stinging Fly Stories anthology along with Declan Mead. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. Lovely to have you here. Can you tell me a little bit about how the anthology was put together?
1: Sure. Uh, Declan uh, approached me in, I think it was around November 2016, and he wanted to put together an anthology of stories to mark the 20th anniversary for The Stinging Fly. So we looked to maybe do it... Uh, to consider all of the stories because there was over 400 of them uh, over the course of a year and to get it out in maybe winter 2017 in line with uh, the 20th anniversary when the press was first set up. Pushed it out a bit and (laughs) uh, instead uh, we have it out in time for uh, the 20th anniversary of the first issue which was in late spring 1998. So uh, I think he approached me maybe because I... uh, do um, a lot of uh, new fiction reviews and things like that for the Irish Times. I've been doing it for four years and there's that same kind of um, ethos in uh, the Stinging Fly magazine to look at new writing and emerging authors. Uh, so there was kind of a parallel between the two.
0: Great. Can I ask a bit about your experience? Of I believe that you did read all 400 stories. I did. I swear. I believe you. So what was that experience like and, and how was the sort of the process of choosing? Um, I believe there are 40 stories in the anthology. What was the process of choosing one-tenth of of what you read? Uh,
1: I guess there wasn't so much of a forensic process. Um, When you read 400 as well, it's an awful lot. Um, And I read them, I I, I didn't have too much space in between when I was reading them. So I didn't have a forensic approach. It was more the ones that stood out to me. Uh, So I made... uh, Oh, I, what I called a shortlist, but Declan uh, called it a long shortlist. Right. So it, was, it was a long list <laughs> yeah. of stories. And from there, we tried to get a, maybe a bit of a balance between emerging authors still. So I think one of the stories in the collection, and I think we're, we're reading it today, is from Kevin Curran. So he's in the, mo- the latest issue that came out uh, just before Christmas. Mm-hmm. And then more established uh, writers who, when they would have published in The Fly, uh, they would have been maybe at the earlier stages of their career. But now they've certainly gone on to um, to publish collections or novels themselves and things like that. So a mix of that, uh, really. But apart from that, just stories that stood out uh, that I had maybe an emotional connection to or else that were stylistically impressive um that did things that other stories didn't that were unique that that was that was it, really.
0: That's very interesting. So you didn't set out with a sort of goal of giving, um, giving the reader a précis of where Irish fiction is today or anything like that sort of general. And yet at the same time, the anthology kind of does give a snapshot of maybe because of the by virtue of what the stinging fly is, what the stinging fly does. It does kind of give uh, a really interesting window onto where Irish literature is at the moment.
1: Yeah, there, it, it was kind of a, it naturally evolved. There's a nice mix of stories, um, kind of some traditional stories, others that play with form, that kind of thing. But I think you're right, because The Stinging Fly has, um, you know, it would have a lot of different types of stories in it anyway. Uh, they kind of naturally just uh, ca- came up through that way.
0: So today on the podcast, we are going to hear some excerpts uh, from the stories that you've chosen. I think we are going to start with a short excerpt now from um, Adventure Stories for Boys, which is by the Dublin novelist Kevin Curran.
2: Kevin Curran, Adventure Stories for Boys I pulled the yellow curtain behind me and never even noticed the lack of a swish. All right, da, I whispered, soft, because I was kind of afraid to disturb things. For one, I was on the bounce and didn't want to alert anyone to my presence, and two, the place felt like a library. You're yeah, looking good, da, yeah, I said easing my school bag to the ground and lifting the plastic grey chair around the face the side of the bed. I scraped myself in, knees up against the mattress and took a breath, cut myself together like. I found my dad's hand, the one not bruised and hooked up the tubes, down by his side and rested my wrist on the cold metal rail. I lifted his fingers, just held them while I rested my thumb on his palm. I was always surprised by the warmth and feel of my dad's hand. There was a roughness there like the hard texture of a stray dog's paw. I had no memory of ever holding my dad's hand before. I was, what, 15? I I'd no memory of holding anyone's hand. Other than Holly's, when I had to bring her to school. But that didn't count. She had the or I'd bait her. I quit in- inspecting his fingers and looked at his face. Sorry I'm late, I said. It's not my... I had to go to class. It seemed with every visit I was discovering something new. Today it was a stubble. Normally he was freshly shaved. I remembered his line from a few weeks before the accident. Mumbled while he was checking his foamy face above the bathroom sink, the rays are about to draw down on his cheek, his eyes all bloodshot and dark, staring hard at his reflection. If you're feeling rough as fuck, son, never let them bastards know. A distant trumpet of daytime television played over the ward. A slight breeze from somewhere swayed the curtains, but couldn't budge the heat. Ma says she keeps getting calls and shit. I paused. I was trying to stay all upbeat like they said I should, keep things positive. But it wasn't easy. She's telling me I have to go in or the courts will be on. And, like, then there'll be more trouble. A trolley and its rinky contents stopped outside our yellow enclosure. A voice, the nurse's muffled instructions, filled the gap in a big, thick, country accent. The hair on my dad's face was growing high on the cheekbones, like something out of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. He wouldn't have been impressed. So yeah, da, I went to a class. I gave his fingers a gentle squeeze and withdrew my hand and leaned down from my bag. I took out my only book, and some old toast I'd fleeced from the breakfast club leftovers nearly two hours before. I settled the book on my lap and said, Where were we, That." But I couldn't concentrate. I was drained, absolutely bollocksed. So instead I said, I met a girl off the train yesterday, That. And so to fill the silence, I went on and told them about how the earphones were in and I was lost dealing with the awful bang of hunger when I heard Taylor call after me. I just strolled on, head down, trying to adjust my walk to stop the instep of my converse from wearing through the, to the socks. Hey Rory, Rory, she shouted and suddenly she was there, with a big giddy face beaming beside me. her cheeks pinched pink like one of Holly's old dolls we'd left abandoned in our bedroom. Hiya, she mounted. I took out the earphones. She smelled fresh and clean, like hubba-bubba. Hiya, I said, returning my eyes to the path, trying hard not to pull a redna. She stood too close, but my school shorts meant like shit after my had hand-washed it in the sink and dried it on the radiator in the bathroom in one of her manic fits. You need to turn your music down, Taylor gushed. I was calling you for ages. I saw you get off the train and followed you over the wall. I had no ticket either, so you saved me. Were you on the mitch too? She was almost skipping with the excitement of it all. We were surrounded by suits and hands, pocketing weekly tickets and cars reversing out of spaces. The train sounded so loud and sluggish pulling from the platform. Yeah. She giggled and nudged me. Where'd you go? Eh, oi, the usual place. The usual place? Oh yeah, you do this a lot, don't you? Suppose. She stopped walking. The crowd had thinned out. I used to think you were, like, a nerd. I shrugged her off, but still felt the sting. You are going home, she said, a glint in her eyes, the final word a little too rushed. The earphones clicked softly in the palm of my hand and I looked to the blue sky for an answer. She was exhausting, suppose. I'll walk with you then. And she waited for me to lead the way. I nearly missed the train, she went on. A face lit by the horror of such a possibility, my ma would have been ringed the school if I wasn't back by five. I just nodded watching her shadows ripple like ghosts before us over the path. She's mad like that, stupid bitch. Though my dad wouldn't give a shit if he found out. He's grand. What's yours like? I looked up to read her face. There was nothing, only her wide eyes and stupid smile. Me ma's streak, strict, but my dad is. I trailed off and Taylor giggled nervously and blurred are all the same. you know Shauna Boylan's that. She lives a few doors up from you like directly behind my house. I can see into her back garden from my bedroom and everything like. Our dad does be out there naked the state of him freak. And so it went for the next five minutes of walking me nodding along the tail of shy talk until we reached the estate. It was still bright and sunny and there were kids out on their bikes pulling wheelies and circling lazily in the middle of the road. Taylor stopped at the corner beside the drive slowly, children playing sign, and stretched up on her tippy toes and peered down the row of houses. Looks like you're in the clear. Your dad's van isn't there. She was nibbling at her bottom lip, eager for something. I gave her nothing. So she said, See it around then. Maybe the next time you go on the Mitch, you can give us a shout, yeah? What's your Snapchat? I went, Eh, I'm. Mine's Taylor, born 56. Duh. Add me. And she giggled and hunched over her phone and started typing while she walked away. I watched her go, then craned to look where she just looked. See what she had seen. I lingered on the empty driveway a while, thinking about the fading patch of oil near the porch from his work fan. When I was sure she was gone, I put my earphones in and felt myself disappear. I turned away from the road, the driveway, the kids' laughter. And started back towards town, to the empty hours ahead.
0: In your introduction to the anthology, you write, While most of the stories focus on a single moment of crisis in one character's life, the lonely voice calling out, the isolation of whole communities can be glimpsed through stories of marginalised individuals. Um, It strikes me that this Kevin Curran story, even in the short excerpt that we just heard, kind of touches on or even exemplifies that idea that you're speaking about. Is that part of why you were drawn to this particular piece, do you think?
1: I think so. Um, Both uh, the character, Rory, and his family, they're in a desperate situation, for sure. And it really comes through in his voice as the teenager trying to deal with everything at such a young age. And I really like the story because of the way... Uh, the author kind of slowly reveals it in different details. So you have the breakfast um, club leftovers at the start, uh, reference to an accident, obviously the fact that he's gone to visit his dad in hospital. Um, But the further you get into the story, the more you learn about it. Um, There's a lovely line later on where he talks about uh, he left he left his water bottle in the room and he's going to be parched for the rest of the day because he left it behind him. Um, and those little details really kind of bring home how desperate the situation is for the whole family.
0: Mm. References, even in that short excerpt that we heard, to um, the sort of pain of hunger and the sense of revelation at that line of, oh, things are not well here, um, even after we've seen him visit his, his father in hospital. Um, do you think that this story... Uh, particularly because it's situated in a kind of social context that is revealed um, as the story moves on, that it speaks not only to this individual's journey, um, but also to a kind of broad snapshot of a kind of society at at the present time. I think so
1: and I think uh, Kevin Kern is very good at getting that not just through this voice but also the voice of Taylor and again uh, later on in the story uh, there's another uh, there's another father and son uh, who uh, the son is about to win a medal and uh, the whole school is going to celebrate him and it works as a really nice juxtaposition uh, for this particular boy and his father uh, but everyone seems to be in some way struggling in the story
0: and that comes across very clearly Mm-hmm Um I think we might hear a short extract now um, from a very different story called The Quiet um, by the Welsh writer Karis Davies.
3: The Quiet by Karis Davies. She didn't hear him arrive. The wind was up and the rain was thundering down on the tin roof like a shower of stones. And in the midst of all the noise, she didn't hear the rattle of his old buggy approaching. She didn't hear the scrape, of his iron-rimmed wheels on the track, the soft thump of his feet in the wet dust. She didn't know he was there until she looked up from her bucket of soapy water and saw his face at her window, his pale green eyes with their tiny black pinprick pupils blinking at her through the glass. His name was Henry Fowler and she hated it when he came. She hated him sitting there for hours on end talking to Tom about hens and beets and pigs, filling his smelly pipe with minute pinches of tobacco from a pouch in his cracked sheepskin waistcoat, tamping down the flakes with his little thumb, lighting and relighting the bowl and sucking at the sem, slurping his tea and sitting there on the edge of his chair like a small, observant bird, and all the time stealing glances at her and looking at her with his sharp eyes as if he could see right through her. It filled her with a kind of shame. She felt she'd do almost anything to stop Henry Fowler looking at her like that, anything to make him leave and clear off back to his end of the valley. It felt like the worst thing in the world to her, him looking at her the way he did. He was looking at her now, on the other side of the glass, blinking at her, "'through the falling rain. "'She wished she didn't have to invite him in. "'She wished she could send him away "'without asking him in and offering him a cup of something. "'But he was their neighbor, "'and he had come six miles across the valley "'in his bone-shaking old buggy, "'and the water had begun to pool around the brim "'of his old felt hat "'and drip onto the shoulders of his crumpled shirt. "'It was bouncing back up off the ground "'and splashing against his boots,' and his baggy, serge-trousers. She would have to offer him a chair by the stove for half an hour, refreshment, a cup of tea at least. She wiped her soapy hands on her skirt and went to the door and opened it and called to him. You better come in, Mr. Fowler, out of the rain. Her name was Susan Boyce, and she was 26 years old. It was eight months now since she and Thomas had sailed out of Liverpool on their wedding day aboard the hurricane in search of a new life. It had excited them both, the idea of starting from nothing. They liked the raised, empty look of everything on the map, the vast, unpunctuated distances. And at the beginning of it all, she hadn't minded that the only company was the sound of the wind and the rain and the crackle of the dry grass in the sunshine. At the beginning of it all, she hadn't minded the quiet. She hadn't minded that when they'd arrived in the town, they'd found nothing more than a single dusty street, no railway station and no church, only an empty hotel and a draper, a dry goods store that doubled as a doctor's surgery, a smithy and a pen for market day. She hadn't minded that when they'd ridden out 12 miles into the parched country beyond the town, they'd found rocks and gum trees and small coarse bushes "'and the biggest sky she'd ever seen, "'and in the middle of it all, "'their own patch of ground "'and low, fallen-down house. "'She hadn't minded "'there weren't any other farms nearby, "'other wives. "'She hadn't minded "'that there was no one else "'but Henry Fowler, "'who lived six miles off "'and had no wife. "'No, she hadn't minded any of it, "'and wouldn't now, she was sure, "'if things with Tom "'were not as they were.' Now she wished there was another wife somewhere not too far away, someone she might by this time have come to consider as a friend, someone she might be able to bring herself to tell. But there was no such person. There was her married sister in Poole who she could write to, but what good would that do when it might be a year before a reply came? A year was an eternity, and she didn't think she could last a year. And even then... She wasn't really sure she could get that thing down on paper in the first place. Once, a month ago, when she and Tom had gone to town and he was off buying nails, she'd got as far as the black varnished door of the doctor's consulting room in the dry goods store. She stood there, outside it gripping her purse, listening to the low murmur of a woman's voice, on the other side of the door. And she tried to imagine her own voice in there, in its place. And she couldn't. She just couldn't. It was an impossible thing for her to do. What if the doctor said he had to speak to Thomas? What then? If there had been a church in town, she might have gone to the priest. A priest, she thought, might be an easy person to tell. But even there, she wasn't sure what a priest would say on such a matter. What if he just told her to go back home and pray? Would she be able to tell him that she'd tried that already? That every night for more than half a year she'd lain in bed and prayed till she was blue in the face and it hadn't worked. Anyway, it was a waste of time to think about a priest because there wasn't a church for a hundred miles. It was a godless place they'd come to. Godless and friendless and only Henry Fowler's wizened walnut face at her window at nine o'clock in the morning, poking his nose into her private business. Well, she would not sink under it. No, she wouldn't. She'd experienced other setbacks in her life, other disappointments and shocks of one sort or another. It would be the same with this one. She would endure it like anything else, and wasn't it true anyway— that in time all things passed. This would too. There was a remedy in the end for everything. She just had to find it. So what made you
0: choose this particular story for the anthology? So even listening to the reading, uh, I
1: just have that, I have chills listening to it. Uh, It's such a strong voice. And before... Before we even look at it or examine it or take it apart, I remember reading this story out of, you know, so many other stories and I read it almost as a child. I I felt like a child reading it. It was just so enjoyable to read before I even thought about what is it about or how does she do it? Um... The tension in it and the fact, I suppose to come back to that line about desperate situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a woman who is completely isolated, um, living 12 miles outside a town, uh, which really isn't a town anyway. It's, uh, you know, one street, a couple of shops, that kind of thing. And there's something awful going on in her life and she has no one to talk to or no one to reach out uh, to. And at the same time, there's this one neighbour who kind of creeps her out Mm -hmm. and he comes around every so often and she doesn't want to be seen by him. But also he's her only resource, really, in in the area. So I just thought it was fantastic. And Carice Davis, the the author, um, I just think she's so good at uh, stakes in her stories. So everything gets ramped up very, very quickly Mm -hmm. and you're drawn into it as a reader very quickly as well.
0: So the experience of reading the 400 stories must have been, um, I mean, it must have been very challenging in many ways, I'm sure. But also for that sudden gut punch of reading one story and thinking, oh, this is this is it. <laughs> um, did you find that there were stories, on the one hand, stories that grabbed you immediately like this one? And I think you're right, the experience even of hearing it is, is very visceral. Um, but were there also stories that on reading you felt... Oh, interesting. And later they became memorable or came back to you or you wanted to return to them in a way it kind of surprised you.
1: Yes, actually. And if you think about reading 400 stories, it takes a while. There were actually a lot of stories that I did go back to and Mm -hmm. read again, which I suppose when I first set out to do the work, I didn't necessarily think I would be reading the stories multiple times. Uh, But yeah, one's the kind of... um, you know, stayed buried for a little bit. And then sometimes you'd read something similar in another story and it would remind you of a story and you go back to it. Uh, So yeah, that certainly happened.
0: Um, In this particular story, the voice is so um, crucial to Mm. how how the story works, I think. Um, And gender is also important here. Um, As in, I guess, as in almost every story, you know, it it has a role. But I think um, in in this particular one, um, it's so central to how we feel about the narrator and how the narrator, of course, experiences the extreme alienation um, that she is in. Um, Did you find that Gender and the and gendered voices, and that those ideas were on your mind as you as you read your way through the the four hundred stories. Not necessarily, and actually, we kind of we talked about this afterwards
1: because out of the forty stories. Um, I suppose in terms of gender, first of all, before voices, just to look at authors, the breakdown of authors in it. Uh, naturally, I think somewhere over uh, along the, the lines of two thirds of the stories are written by women. And there was no conscious effort on, on my behalf, mm. certainly when I was going through the stories, but maybe there was an unconscious bias. I'm I'm naturally drawn uh, to, to stories written by women, but I don't know. But... Uh, specifically for the stories and for the voices and the narrators I don't know I just took the stories as they came I read them as they were
0: no, that makes perfect sense. And um, that something doesn't have to be a conscious consideration. And I think you're right that it's there at a, it's, it's you know, doing its work at some kind of subconscious level, but it's impossible to pick apart all the significance that's kind of built in there.
1: In this particular story, it's interesting because it starts out very strongly with her voice. You completely identify with her. You don't like Henry at the start. Mm. And it switches uh, just for a few paragraphs uh, midway through the story to his voice. And in another story, in the hands of a lesser writer, it would be very jarring to move away from Susan's story and to switch suddenly to Henry's voice but here it actually works really well and then the switch back and it gets you thinking you know oh well maybe you know what's he you don't necessarily think he's good but you do think about his aims or what he's what he's out for and that kind of thing so it's it works really well.
0: And it's something that I think um, you don't often encounter in short stories, maybe that's a generalisation, but because of the compression of the form, you often just have to stick really closely to one consciousness that becomes the sort of overwhelming presence in the story. So for a writer to experiment with the idea of drawing in external sort of um, narrators or perceptions um, from other characters who may seem to be peripheral at the beginning is something that's, I think, really tricky to get right. So it's impressive when a, when a writer can pull it off. And especially when he's the villain, you know, <laughs> he's he
1: been made the yeah. villain at the start of the story, at least, you know, for from how the reader is taking it and I suppose it's something that you're told or that you learn maybe not to do in short stories because they're so short you know stick with one character stay with one voice um, and it's the same sometimes in novels and I, I do I find it really interesting uh, why does it work for some people or why does it work for some writers why can they do it so well to switch between voices um, I was going to say indiscriminately but obviously it's not maybe indiscriminate. No, in with, those, huge
0: <laughs> with huge
1: discrimination with huge discrimination and then in other in other stories and other novels it just jars so much or it's just it looks awkward. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think um, sort of the process of characterization, even when writers do restrict themselves choose to or have to restrict themselves to one particular voice the process of making other characters other than our narrator or our protagonist really come alive as a presence on the page is another um, difficult thing. And I think this next excerpt that we're going to hear does it so brilliantly that we feel that every single player in this in this story has a backstory all of their own, has a psyche all of their own. Um, and even when it remains secret to the reader, we encounter it in such a charismatic and compelling way. So we're going to hear uh, a short reading from uh, Night of the Silver Fox by the Irish short story writer Danielle McLaughlin.
4: Danielle McLaughlin, Knight of the Silver Fox We're in Injun territory now, Kavanaugh said when he saw the boy coming across the forecourt. These limerick bastards would rub the teeth out of your head and he counted the change down to the last cent before putting it in his pocket. It was almost dark when they pulled back onto the road. Kavanaugh threw a packet of crisps across the cab. That'll keep you going, he said. We can't count on Liddy for grub. Four miles before Kilcrocken, they turned down a narrow side road, grass growing up the centre. Briars tore at the sides of the lorry. There's a man in Dundalk runs one of these on vegetable oil, Kavanaugh said. Did you ever hear anything about that? No, said Gerard, although he remembered reading something in a newspaper a couple of months back. If he let on that he knew anything at all, Kavanagh would have him tormented. Kavanaugh had a child's wonder for the new and the strange. Each new fact was seized upon and dismantled, taken apart like an engine and studied in its various components. He'd been bright at school but had left at 14 to work in the fish factory. Kavanaugh shook his head. I don't think I could stand it, he said. The smell. must be like driving around in a fucking chipper. Jared glanced across at Kavanaugh and tried to work out if he was serious. Kavanaugh was watching the road, fingers drumming the steering wheel, humming to himself again. The light from the dashboard lent a vaguely sainted glow to his features. Jared decided not to say anything. Kavanaugh broke off his humming and sighed. You're all chat this evening, he said. Can't get a word in edgeways. Are you in love or what? Fuck off, Jared said but he was smiling as he turned to look out at the trees that reached black and tall from the hedges, their branches slapping against the lorry's window. Jared had first been to Liddy's mink farm back in August, six weeks after he started working for Kavanagh. He had not been able to shake the memory of the place since. It was partly the farm itself, and it was partly Liddy's daughter. She was about 17, with blue-black hair and a nose stud, Eyes heavily ringed with black liner. When Kavanagh had gone inside with her father, she had taken Jared across the yard to show him the mink. The mink were housed in sheds a couple of hundred feet long, 20 or 30 feet wide, with low, sloping roofs of galvanised sheeting. The sides were open to the elements, wind blowing in from the mountains to the west. Jared followed the girl into the first shed and along a sawdust path down the centre. In wire mesh cages on either side were thousands of mink, mostly all white with here and there a brown one. They darted back and forth and stood on their hind legs, heads weaving, snouts pressed against the wire. Their eyes glittered like wet beads and they twisted and looped, twisted and looped, hurling their bodies against the sides of the cages. Jared stood in front of a cage and poked a finger through the mesh. A mink stopped chewing its fur and looked at him, A vicious tilt to its chin. It sniffed the air, crept closer and snapped, grazing the tip of his finger. Then it backed away to stare at him from a distance. The girl was a couple of paces ahead, watching. I suppose you think it's cruel, she said. Her hair was tucked into the hood of her jacket. Gerard examined his finger and shrugged. It's none of my business, he said. The girl stared at him for a moment, saying nothing, her dark eyes narrowing. Then she sighed. It's what they're bred for, she said, turning away. They don't know any different. It was dark when Kavanaugh swung the lorry through a muddy entrance with rough concrete pillars on either side. The lorry lurched along an uneven track lined with chain-link fencing. In the distance, Jared could make out the long, dark lines of the mink sheds, moonlight glinting on the metal roofs, and beyond them, a huddle of outbuildings. Liddy hasn't paid since June, Kavanaugh said, so he'll need to come up with the cash tonight. I'll sort you out then. It's all right, Jared said. It's grand, although it wasn't all right anymore. Kavanaugh hadn't paid him in three weeks, and on his last visit home, Jared had to borrow money from his father to pay the rent. "'I'll sort you out,' Kavanagh repeated as the lorry turned into the yard. "'The farmhouse was a square, two-storey building, "'it's whitewash fading, weeds growing from the crevices in the front steps. "'A cache ran across the lorry's path and hid behind a row of tar barrels. "'Liddy's mud-spattered jeep was parked in the yard, a backlight broken. "'It would be easy to feel sorry for Liddy,' Kavanagh said. "'But what would be the use in that?' They both got out of the lorry. A light came on in the porch and Liddy himself appeared. He was a stooped, wiry man, a grey cardigan hanging loose from his shoulders, and his eyes darted from Gavin to Jared and back again as he came towards them across the yard. His skin had the waxy, pinched look of a museum doll. It reminded Jared of how his mother had looked in the months before she died, and he knew Liddy was sick.
0: I hope you don't mind me quoting again from your introduction. Um, I, I think we've actually discussed or, or glanced on this, this quote um, before, but I, I was struck by this. Um, the stories the magazine has published chart many different Ireland's through the downtime, though the downtimes certainly went out as fictional backdrops. This is perhaps unsurprising for a form that deals so well with the desperate situations of ordinary people. So desperation is certainly a common theme in quite a few of even the stories that we're just um, looking at today, and I think it's palpable in this excerpt. And funny enough, it's not so much there in the beginning, but it grows and and grows, and it's and throughout the rest of the story and um, that that we don't get a chance to hear on this podcast, it continues. Um, I think to become all the more um, visceral as the as the story continues. Um, so is that part of of what's so great about this particular piece?
1: I think so. And actually, to come back to the point that you made about Kevin Curran's story earlier, uh, certainly I see this again here everyone in this story is suffering. Um, from Liddy, the farmer who's obviously sick, who's very ill, from his daughter who's trying to keep the farm afloat, uh, from Kavanagh, uh, the kind of mercenary guy who's trying to get his money, uh, to his young employee, Jared, as well. Everyone is su- suffering. And theres I don't want to spoil the end of the story too much, but there's a lovely bit at the end where after being with all these characters and being in this really intense situation on the farm uh, where the young girl does something effectively to save the farm, or certainly to save her father from having to pay at this particular time. Uh, when they're driving away, uh, the, the lens widens and Danielle moves away from just looking at the particular characters uh, to kind of give a general scene. And it just makes the sense of um, of suffering and of misery all over the country, all over that rural landscape uh, so impactful. It's beautiful.
0: I think that's very true. And I, I also think obviously there is a way in which we can analyse um the ethical sort of ramifications of what happens in this story and conclude that say Kavanaugh might be seen as the villain of the piece but in the excerpt that we heard I think there's also a real sense of um, moral generosity toward this man and um, we get a sense of his own motivations and his, his, his thirst for knowledge his desire to know and understand more about the world and the sense that he's been caged in by circumstances um, there's a real sympathetic identification with everyone, not just the people who are doing the right thing or, you know, who seem like the the most sympathetic uh, superficially.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's no black and white, this is the villain and... uh these are the poor people that the villain is Mm -hmm. uh, making work for him and I suppose you could look at it from the perspective of Rosie as well you know what she does is questionable uh, but she does it in a way that's actually very noble because she's doing it for her father and doing it for the farm Uh, I particularly I really liked Kavanaugh, and the excerpt that I chose um, I'm from Limerick and I just think the dialogue is very Limerick is just very dry and uh, quite sharp and you know obviously calling him out the fact that he's not talking are you in love <laughs> or what uh, there's something just very funny about it mm-hmm. so yeah even though he's after the money uh, even though he says things like but what would be the use in that um, you know in terms of feeling sorry for Liddy mm-hmm. uh, he's actually I, I find him very appealing as a character as well
0: me too um, there are also Uh, a lot of animals in the story Mm. Um, in the title of the story obviously it's a mink farm I think we saw a cat in the short excerpt that we read and I think often when certainly when I've been reading um, submissions to The Stinging Fly animals often appear um, in short stories and they frequently have a sort of clear symbolic meaning to the characters in this story I think it's something a little bit more complex it's not Quite so easy to analyse what exactly these animals sort of mean, and um, wh- what exactly they symbolise or signify. They seem to play a kind of ambivalent and quite strange role. They're vicious in a way, yeah. <laughs> but you also, but they're also sympathetic. Not unlike, not unlike the characters themselves. What do you think, um, Danielle McLaughlin, is doing with sort of the natural world and, and the animal world in this in this piece? She is fantastic with the natural
1: world, and I say that um, as someone who doesn't really have a huge love for the natural world. Myself, When I read her stories, I read every single line and every single image because the way she describes it is so vivid. Um, She makes me see things that I don't normally see um, as myself uh, in in the real world. Um, Actually, just to pick up on that line that you said, I love that line about the cat. Uh, I just want to read it here again. A cat ran across the Larry's path and hid behind a row of tar barrels. It just, it makes that whole scene come to life. She's not just talking about what's in the farm. She's literally, you know, through the character's eyes, seen that a cat has ran across. And I, I just think it's a great line. But in terms of the other animals, so you've got fish guts at the start. There's quite a grueling, dark, uh, macabre image of the fish guts at the beginning. And then that's kind of echoed at the end uh, at the when he sees all the corpses of the minx. yes. And I suppose in a way um, there are parallels between, you know, the human lives that are suffering and certainly the, this kind of cloud of death is hanging over the narrative. So Liddy's very sick, Jared, the narrator, his mother has died. And I think that's kind of coming through uh, with the different types of imagery she's using with the animals.
0: It seems uh, you're right. At times macabre, but also incredibly effective in building the atmosphere. Um, it's uh, it's kind of seems to me like a classic short story. It's so perfect at what at what it's doing. And um, the next short story we're going to hear an excerpt from I also think is is a classic and kind of really perfect in its own way, but doing something very strange and uh, and I think quite fresh. So we're going to hear an extract from the story Hump by the Irish writer Nicole Flattery.
5: At 70, after suffering several disappointments, the first being my mother, the second being me, my father died. One evening he gathered the family in his room and asked if anyone had any questions. No one did. The next day he died. At the funeral everyone looked like someone I might sort of know. These strangers told anecdotes and made general health suggestions to each other. I passed out the sandwiches. They were cling-filmed and oddly perforated, like they had been pierced again and again by cocktail sticks. I said, Sambo, to every single person in that room. It was a good word, a word I hoped would get me through the entire evening. I wasn't strong in speaking or finding ordinary things to discuss in large groups. The place was crowded with false grief, people constantly moving positions like an A&E, depending on the severity of their wounds. I mentioned that I held his wrist when he passed, and through the use of the phrase, flickering pulse, I was booted up to first class. My father told me he regretted not talking more. He felt the time others used for conversation, he filled with snooker or nodding or looking away. He surmised through a mouthful of diabetic chocolate, that he'd only spoke 30% of his life. It was a dismal percentage, and I was familiar with what dismal percentages could do to a person. We were spending a lot of time together then, linking arms and being totally happy. I had this one trick I did for him. I'd curl up tight into his bed under the starch sheets and peep out at the nurses like I was an old lady. It was a scream. They said I was their youngest patient. I laughed and asked them to leave the pills in a tidy arrangement on the bedside locker. My antics gained me a certain level of recognition and infamy in the retirement home, and at times I could feel my father almost bursting with pride. We both agreed it was the perfect trick for the occasion of his near death. I was good at gestures. But it was only in that function room when I spoke my sad but true stories in my fragile tone that I finally got the appeal of talking. I thought this is what I will be now, a talker. My job had taken a sinister turn and I would started to keep an eye out, like you do for a new lover, for other things I could try. There weren't many. All jobs seemed to contain one small thing I just could not do. It was maddening. I told a number of stories about my father that evening. I was there, but I wasn't. My mind was mainly preoccupied with what I could do in my new life as a talker. I would be both stylish and intelligent, but also deeply affecting in my conversation. When that room of strangers looked up at me, I did not know if I wanted them to cry or to clap. It was in the shower where I found it first. I had moved into my father's old house and sometimes would shower sitting down on the stool that was installed for comfort. Or if I was feeling up to it, I would stand. The bathroom was filthy, with intermittent flashes of what looked like the colour peach. On sitting down days, I often crawled from one side of the room to the other. I could get away with this because I lived alone. It must have been a standing day as I realised I was a lot closer to the taps than I used to be. I was a lot closer to the hair on the taps. I was stooping over like I was playing old lady in a celebrated stage production, except I was all scrunched up and very naked. I pressed my fingers below my shoulders and felt it shifting, unfurling, the hard roundness of it like a golf ball or a marble. I dressed myself quickly, being careful not to catch sight of it in the mirror. When I stood on the train that morning, my fingers gripping the rail above, I could feel it growing beneath my skin, like a second layer of flesh. I worked in an office outside the city and we all had the appearance of people who had been brutally exiled. We shed our city selves, but lacking imagination, we had nothing to replace them with. Between the 40 of us, I think we could have made a complete person. I'd been there six months, and it was the longest position I ever held. None of it mattered, but I liked to pretend it did. If someone came in, I might say, come in. That was it. That was the whole script. It wasn't exactly spiritually fulfilling. Often I was so bored, I couldn't hold a conversation. I walked around cubicles abandoning sentences. Whenever I entered the kitchen area, my colleagues left quickly and without warning. I think they were jealous because my desk got the most direct sunlight. I didn't understand them at all. I had a habit of thinking I was very unique and interesting.
0: This is one of my, I think one of my favourite stories um, that The Singing Fly has published. Um, I think it's it's so extremely funny and um, distinctive. Um, why did you choose this story for inclusion in the anthology?
1: Uh, probably for those two reasons. Uh, they're, they're a good starting off point anyway. Uh, one of the things I had noticed uh, out of the 400 stories is n- so... V- Not so few of them, but um, not so many of them, I suppose, uh, do humour. A lot of them are focused on sad, uh, sad topics or Um, tragic stories or disasters or crises. Uh, So when you come across a story that actually makes you laugh out loud and multiple times, uh, it's great, Uh, especially after um, a a period of reading lots of sad stories as well. So Nicole's really stood out. And, uh, you know, uh, this story is about grief and it's about uh, a father dying as well. But it it happens to be really funny at the same time.
0: That's so true. And I think I I encounter... Humour used quite frequently in stories, but almost always packaged within the dialogue. So you'll have characters who speak in a funny, outlandish way, but once you go back to the narrative, it's sort of quite straight laced, and it's it's telling the story in a kind of traditional literary way. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like what Nicole Flattery is doing in the story is combining the kind of vivacious weirdness of Irish dialogue with actual narrative voice. Um, it's a very voice led story, mm-hmm. um, and it's doing something um, very interesting there. How I mean, after reading as many stories as you did, you must have developed a sort of um an, an interesting perspective on how voice is used in in the short story form.
1: Maybe. Uh certainly with this story, the voice comes across so strongly. And I think you're right that she does use humor humor to do it. It's almost like the voice of a stand-up comedian every so often. And I think it creates this distance. Um, that's quite clever uh, because in a way it reflects the fact that the story is about loss and I guess about distance uh, because somebody's dead, but also the distance that the reader can't really understand what the character is going through because of that loss. And I think she uses humor uh, to get that across in the, in the piece. Um, so while we can hear her voice and we feel like we're identifying with her because everyone likes a laugh or everyone likes a joke, actually um, I'm not necessarily sure we're in on the joke. Um, I don't even know if she's in on the joke.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, or what the distance is between the narrator and reader or between the author and narrator. It all seems like is this quite on the level or is this all kind of slightly droll and not quite to be taken seriously? And I think Nicole Flattery is probably playing with that all the way along and not knowing, um, the reader not knowing quite how seriously we're supposed to be taking it all. And let us not forget about the hump either. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Because
1: her work situation is hilarious and what goes on with her boss Mm -hmm. is Hilarious. And even when she talks about, you know, the, that opening with the Irish funeral, which can be so stereotypical um, to read and you know there are certainly things in this that you think yeah that nails it but actually you can use things that people really associate uh, with Irish funerals like sandwiches like people coming up to you and wanting to know the details and wanting to know the stories and you can elevate them in a way and uh, that's what she does here but before we even uh, before we even get to the fact that she suddenly finds the hump in the shower uh, you've got all these other kind of funny situations that lead up to the hump so you're almost you know, it doesn't even seem as absurd as it actually is when she gets the hump and then the hump gets bigger yes. because you're in her world.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. She's already dragged <laughs> you into this slightly surreal and yet painfully quite real yeah. um, world. And it, it is so interesting to me that the story opens. Um, we did read from the opening. We we did hear rather from the opening just now. Yeah, it it is always funny to me that that story opens with what is really uh, an almost archetypical trope in Irish fiction, the Irish funeral. I mean, that's sort of... Um, you know, is there any great Irish writer who hasn't written an Irish funeral scene <laughs> at some point? It feels like the funeral is something that, um, that you kind of have to do. a um, passage. Yes, exactly. And Nicole obviously does it in her own extremely distinctive <laughs> way. And um, I'm not, I mean, I'm not accusing her of consciously um, trying to play with the tropes of Irish literary history. Um, I have no idea whether it was intentional or not. Um, but did you find yourself encountering in your reading? Um, tropes or archetypes that resurfaced again and again, and particular writers playing with them in a way that was unexpected and, and new.
1: I'm just trying to think uh, how many funerals I came across in, in the <laughs> quite 400 Quite a few, stories. I would wager. Yeah. Definitely quite a few. Um, also, uh, characters leaving Ireland uh, was another thing. So kind of escaping from Ireland. Uh, there's a beautiful story by Keith Ridgway in the anthology about a young Irish man uh, who goes to New York and um Figures out his sexuality over in New York in a way that he couldn't do back in Ireland. Um, I think it's set maybe late 80s, early 90s. Um, so certainly immigration and getting away from Ireland and then maybe coming back and having a different perspective on Ireland was, uh, was one thing I saw too.
0: Um, I think finally we're going to have a reading from uh, Kevin Barry's story, Last Days of the Buffalo.
6: Kevin Barry, Last Days of the Buffalo Foley was six foot five on the morning of his 14th birthday and half as wide again. This is the original brick house we're talking about. He was a clown of a child. His father informed him daily he was fit for faucets. There wasn't a school jumper could be got in the town to fit him. The best his father could do was a chandler's on the dock road that stocked a heavy-duty v-neck designed for vast trawler men sent to face the wrath of the Irish box. Foley at 14 wore it to face the brothers. In cold weather, the rad in the classroom would seize up and to free its workings it needed to be hit a wallop and this became Foley's job. The teacher would roar down in a hoarse, boo-scratched voice. Foley, hit that rad and I'll slap by." You're good for something anyway, you big eejit. And he'd slug across the floor, Foley, and the other boys would do the Jaws music. da da-da, 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 da-da and he'd wind up the shoulder, take a swing at the thing with an opened palm, and it'd gurgle back to life from pure shock of force. Quiet awe would swell in the classroom. He follows the creek, goes past the factory, and the creek begins to quicken once it rounds the bend that leaves Mungerit behind. Ahead of him on the pathway there's a distraction. On the last high bank of the creek there are some boys gathered, and as he approaches them he grows wary because he can see the shimmer of their gold in the afternoon sun. They wear streaks in their hair and dress shirts in bright colours. They have alert beaks and startled eyes. There are six of them, no seven. There's eight of them, count, nine. Travellers. Story boss. What's the story big man? Some size of a creature we've on our hands here boys, look it. They stand in a half circle to block the pathway but they keep switching position. They keep dancing around the place. It's as though they're on coals, and their voices have hoarse urgency. Where are you headed sir? Are you headed for the hills? I'd say. Come here, I want you. Where do they keep you? Do they keep you in a home? What brings you out this way, sir? And what size are you at all, huh? If you don't mind me asking, like you must be seven foot tall. Tell me this much and tell me no more. What size is the man below? The women must think it's town. Now listen, says Foley. That is the kind of talk I won't abide. Oh, it has a tongue. Ah, come here now and go easy. Where would you live, fella? Are you inside in the city? Are the help board looking after you? They move in closer and the talk changes to a confiding tone. Listen, you do us a turn, hey? You see what it is. We're short a few yo-yo for a game of pitch and putt below in Pitch and putt my eye, says Foley. You fellas are no more playing pitch and put. You calling us liars? A leader emerges. He spreads his arm like he's nailed to a cross and he looks to the sky in great noble suffering and he bellows from deep. Hold on, boys. It should have been obvious who the leader was. His shirt is of the richest purple and his hair is the most vivaciously streaked. His gold shimmers in the sun and he slaps a stick off the ground. Hold on, boys. What we're dealing with here is no old fool. You're right, sir. We are having nothing at all to do with pitch and putt. Truth be known, there is a tragedy we're dealing with. Martin here at the Runt. Martin's mother is laid below in palace green. Misfortunate Kathleen, God rest her and preserve her and all belonging to her. And the situation we're after being landed in, through no fault of our own, we're short the few euro to wake her right. So help us out there, boss, will you? Martin's in a bad way. Oh, I'm bad, sir, says Martin. Oh, I'm bad now. And I guarantee you there'll be prayers said. Shh, now, says the leader. And again, he slaps the stick off the ground. But Foley just smiles. Out of my way, gentlemen, he says. I'm going to walk on through. The leader slaps the stick and exhales powerfully through his nose. He regards in the distance the hills of Clare. We're not getting through to you, hi. Put your hand in the pocket there and help us out, like. They dance around him again. They swap and jostle with each other. They have terrible static in them, but Foley doesn't move and Foley doesn't speak. The leader comes a step closer. Who the fuck do you think you are? Foley smiles. Look, he says, we're off on a bad footing. Can we not be civilised? Can we not calm ourselves here? Can we not be pals? Look, I'll tell you what, will you shake my hand? The leader smiles. Negotiations have been smoothed. He opens his face to Foley. He is a reasonable person. Course, he says. Course I'll shake. Foley closes his hand softly around the boy's hand then and a cold quiver passes between them. It's the feeling in the hazel switch when it divines water and it's the feeling that comes at night when a tendon in the calf muscle has a twitched memory of a falling step, and it's there too, somehow, in the great confluence of starlings when they spiral and twist like smoke in the evening sky. Foley holds the boy's hand and the feeling sustains for a single necessary moment. You were born the fourth son in a lay-by outside Tarbert, he says, and you'll die a wet afternoon in the coming May. The way I'm seeing it, a white van will go off the road at a T-junction, a Hitachi, if I'm seeing it right. And I can tell you this much, bud, it ain't gonna be pretty. Whatcha saying to me? Whatcha saying to me, you fat fucking freak? The leader shucks his hand free and takes a step back, and the others step back too. Foley, arrogant now, draws a swipe through the air as though he's swatting flies, and he walks on through. For a while, the traveller boys follow him, and they taunt him from a distance, but he knows they will not make the decision.
0: Um, Internationally, I think Kevin Barry is now maybe one of the best known writers to emerge from The Stinging Fly. Um, Was it hard to choose one example of his work to include in the anthology? Yes, it was. Uh, There's a lot of his stories
1: uh, that I really like. Um, But I liked this one, again, I suppose, because of the dialogue. Uh, But I loved the character of Foley. And I think this story does something... um, It does something... It's a quiet tale, but it's quietly momentous. There's something really big happening in the story but there's no bells and whistles to it. There's no alarms going off. It just happens all of a sudden. Um, that paragraph that we heard about um, the calf, uh, the calf muscle twitching as if it had a memory um, where where Foley reaches out and takes the traveller boy's hand and has this um, vision of how he will die. I think that's really, it really stopped me in my tracks when I got to that. I wasn't expecting it at mm-hmm. all.
0: Um, it seems as if, Kevin Barry kind of inaugurated this moment of magical realism in, in Irish fiction, which isn't to say there was there was none of that going on before, um, but certainly reading his stories there is that kind of gothic element that comes to the fore in Kevin Barry's work and 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 brings a lot of um, and I think has influenced a lot of, of Irish writers who have followed him in the short time since, uh, since he started publishing. Yeah, absolutely.
1: There's a strangeness to his stories so or there's an otherworldliness to them, uh, but at the same time they're still firmly grounded in reality. Um, so again, he's very good at landscape and setting. And in this story, you know, he'll describe, you know, the limerick setting, the creek, the nature around him, but even something um, as, you know, he'll, he'll describe something like the Texaco forecourt and it'll come to life in a different way. So these are all very real things that we know as people. And then he'll, put some, he'll put some other element into the story that will bring it to another level, but in a believable way. Mm-hmm. Um, like I believe that Foley can, um, can see how this traveller is is going to end. And there's a great bit at the end where um, he kind of breaks the fourth wall and he says, you know, Foley might bring one day, Foley is a taxi driver and one day he might pick you up too. You might get into his car and it's really creepy.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it just has that effect of, oh, oh I really, <laughs> I really hope I don't. So I think you know it's rare that you find that with the story, and that it can have so you can have so many emotions when you're reading it.
0: That's very true. I think in the years since um, the story was first published, I think there's probably been an increasing amount of debate about writers. writing with or drawing from cultures that they don't specifically belong to, so ideas like cultural appropriation, writing about minority groups that the writer doesn't necessarily belong to or or grow up with. Um, Did you have those issues in your mind either with this story specifically, um, with Kevin Barry writing about the travelling community or just reading the whole 400 stories that you did read, were those issues on your mind at all?
1: Not really. And I think maybe it's because most of the stories that I read, uh, the voices seemed very authentic and very unique. And certainly uh, in this story, I think both Foley's voice and the voices of the travelling community, I I felt,
0: for me anyway, um, reflected um, what I thought that they should. Mm -hmm. And and there's there's that sort of gothic feeling to the story that nothing is quite as it seems anyway. So I guess not being grounded in the 100% factual reality that we live in, but having this kind of slightly surrealist tinge that maybe that changes the calculus around those kind of ideas. Sure. So I think that's uh, that's it for our readings today. Um, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'd also like to thank the Arts Council for supporting this podcast and to the readers that we had reading extracts from the stories today. So that was Leona Lee Colley, Oshin Fagan, Nora Pine, Lucy Sweeney Byrne and Carl Parkinson. Um, and thanks so much for listening to the podcast and you'll be hearing from us again very soon.